Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Mario Sakura, and uh, I'm here with my co-hosts, my returning co-host from last season, TJ Daw. How are you, TJ? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Excellent. And we also are joined by our new co-host, TJ Ingracia. TJ, how are you doing today? Doing great. Great. So you all remember TJ from the uh, holiday movie episode from uh, last season. This is the kickoff to season three, and we are calling this kind of a potpourri season, mixing up a number of different things. We're going to start off with five episodes, taking a look at the Marvel movies, uh, which I'm really excited about, but not nearly as excited as the two TJs are, I can tell you that. So, uh, But I think this is going to be the grounds for some great conversation and some really great examples of Enneagram types in movies. And then we're going to move on to a few other topics that we'll let you know about as the season goes on after the Marvel movies. So we have been taking different approach. Season one looked at one movie per Enneatype and instinctual bias. Season two, we talked about directors and the Enneagram types through that lens. What we're going to do for these next five episodes is take two of the Marvel movies and talk about them and talk about themes related to the Enneagram and those two things. So I'm going to ask TJ and Gracia, if you would, to kind of give an overview of what we're trying to accomplish with this pairing, TJ. Sure. Well, today we're talking about Iron Man and the Avengers and focusing mostly on Tony Stark slash Iron Man. Tony Stark's the character, Iron Man's his superhero alter ego. And before I get into those two films specifically, I think we need to establish this concept of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Iron Man was the first film that kicked off this franchise. Currently, there's 27 films that have been released. There's about 10 more in various stages of development. And just for reference, these 27 films have grossed over $25 billion at the box office. So, you know, it's like, why do they keep making so many of these movies? Well, they're going to keep making them until the sun burns out. (laughs) Yes. And I'll tell you what was interesting. I was surprised as I was researching, particularly Iron Man, that they were not sold on the concept of doing this. They saw the Iron Man movie as sort of a risk, but uh, turned out to be a risk that paid off pretty well. Okay, so the Marvel Cinematic Universe consists of all these 27 films so far, and the films have been released sort of in what they call phases. Various characters are introduced along the way, and the two films we're talking about today, Iron Man and the Avengers, are the bookends of phase one. And phase one sort of introduces the main core characters of the franchise. Uh, Each one sort of has their own film, and then leading up to the Avengers is the first film where they all come together. And so the best way to start this series off is just introducing the core characters and then obviously the first film in the franchise, Iron Man. Great. So a couple of things. What was interesting is that uh, Robert Downey Jr. was kind of at a low point in his career when he got this, and he was not the first choice. John Favreau was not 
that big a deal, right? I mean, he had done a few things. He had done, uh, I always think of him as, uh, oh, shoot, the one with Vince Vaughn, where they go to Las Vegas. Uh, Swingers. Swingers, yes, thank you. Uh, for me, that will always be John Favreau in my mind, right? A very low-budget uh, movie that he made. And he really showed that he had some directing chops with this movie and was going on to make some really, really big, big movies, including Elf, which the three of us talked about before, right? So a lot of range with John Favreau. But no action movies. He hadn't done anything that was similar to this in style. Right. And if you look at his body of work, from Swingers to Elf to Iron Man, it's not a straight line. No, not at all. But that also ended up being an advantage because the studio figured he's not so big that we can't control him. And same with Robert Downey Jr. He wasn't so famous that they had to pay a lot for him. They paid $500,000 for Iron Man to Robert Downey Jr. And when you look at what his payday was for the Avengers, it was $50 million. So Iron Man has been very, very good to Robert Downey Jr. So uh, Enneagram types that we're going to discuss today, we're going to talk about a number of them. I think there's some really good examples. Uh, one of the things that I really like about the Marvel movies is because they kind of work in archetypes, you see the Enneagram types pretty clearly through a lot of these movies, right? I think it's pretty easy to see a lot of the examples. And I think today there's going to be a number that we talk about. One Enneagram type in particular, I think is going to get most of our focus, but Good example of seven, nine, three, one for sure. So those will be the key ones that we talk about. And uh, what other Enneagram types came out for you guys uh, in clear, vivid ways during watching these movies? Type two for Pepper Potts, from my point of view. Ah, mm -hmm. type two. Anything, uh, TJ Ingracia, for you? Well, I think there's a couple of sixes in there. I don't want to tip my hand too much and get ahead of myself here. But I think there's at least a couple characters, especially if you dip into some of the secondary tertiary characters, you can fill out the whole Enneagram with there's nothing missing. For sure. Especially with the Avengers. When we get into the Avengers, you start to see these. Um, so without getting uh, too into depth with those, why don't we start off? Why don't we dive right into Iron Man here to frame our conversation? So TJ Daw, give us an overview of Iron Man. Yeah, this is an Iron Man synopsis full of spoilers, as always. So genius weapons designer and hedonist Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., after giving a demonstration of his company's new Jericho missile in Afghanistan to the U.S. military, gets caught in a terror attack and injured by one of his own company's bombs. He's taken prisoner by a terrorist group called the Ten Rings, and his life is saved by another prisoner of theirs, a doctor named Yinsen who affixes a magnet to his chest powered by a car battery, which prevents small pieces of shrapnel that he wasn't able to extricate from entering Tony Stark's heart. Tony's captors demand that he build them a Jericho missile of their own. And instead he builds a smaller, more efficient power source for his chest magnet and then a big suit of armor, which is powered by that same power source on his chest, which he uses to escape killing many of his captors and destroying their cache of weapons that his company manufactured, which were sold to them without him knowing it. He returns to the U.S. and announces that his company will not be making any more weapons, much to the surprise of his personal assistant, Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and his company's next highest executive, Obadiah Stane, played by Jeff Bridges. He refines the armored suit that he created and finds out that the Ten Rings terrorists are now wreaking havoc in a small Middle Eastern village, coincidentally, the exact village where Yinsen, who saved his life, came from. Yinsen didn't survive the escape. And Tony flies to this village, beats the terrorists, draws the attention of the U.S. military, particularly Tony's 
military liaison Colonel James Rhodes, or Rhodey, played by Terrence Howard, but only in the first movie, soon to be replaced by Don Cheadle in the succeeding movies, who agrees to cover for him. So Tony dedicates himself to improving his armor and using it to bring about peace, but he's soon frozen out from his own company by none other than Obadiah Stane, who it turns out is the real bad guy. He had paid the Ten Rings to capture Tony in the first place and to kill him. Stane has Stark's engineers build him a bigger, badder metal suit, and the story climaxes with Tony and Obadiah going head to head. Tony beats him, barely, and Obadiah dies in the struggle. And Tony's then given a cover story by Agent Phil Coulson of the just formed international security agency SHIELD. He starts reading this cover story at a press conference and then abruptly goes off script saying, I am Iron Man. And the Black Sabbath song of the same name kicks in and summer movie audiences in 2008 cheered in excitement and are cheering still. And then in a brief post-credits scene, Tony is visited by Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who teases us all by mentioning the Avenger Initiative. Great synopsis. Thank you. Before we get into the Enneagram types, I'm, I'm always curious about the trivia behind these movies. There were a couple of things that I uh, found, uh, uh, one of which was that one of the people considered very seriously to play Tony Stark was Sam Rockwell. Um, which I thought would have been a really interesting bit of casting and a very different character, I think. I'm a big Sam Rockwell fan. I think he's great in everything. But this character is just now so associated with Robert Downey Jr. that it's hard to imagine anybody else in the role. So another thing is the character of uh, Tony Stark in the comic books was uh, based on Howard Hughes, which I thought was very interesting. So that's the extent of my Iron Man trivia. What else do you guys have? Another strong contender for the role was uh, Tom Cruise, who had expressed interest in this for years. And something the Marvel Universe did, the comics did in the early 2000s, was they had their kind of parallel universe version called the Ultimate Universe. And in that, the Avengers are called the Ultimates. And at one point, they're all sitting around talking about who would play each of them in a movie. And Tony says it would be Tom Cruise for himself. So I think that would have created a very different performance. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciated watching these movies was the humor. Just the little sort of throwaway lines, um, you know, at different times to diffuse the tension. Tom Cruise is not funny. Not on purpose, anyway. <laughs> no, not on purpose, right? I, I'll, I'll watch Mission Impossible movies all day, but boy, oh boy, would these have been different movies with Tom Cruise in that role, right? I mean, you know, Tom Cruise is not the butt of jokes in Tom Cruise movies, right? It's just, just never something that happens. Okay, so what Enneagram type is Tony Stark? Seven. Big old seven. One of the sevenest sevens I've ever seen. Before rewatching these films, I had more of a three-ish vibe from him. And rewatching it, specifically Iron Man, it's a big old seven. There's no, there's no other way around it. I think his character does evolve over the series. He gets a little bit more serious. I think there are still some very three-ish elements of his personality. Uh, you know, he's a fictional character, so there's sort of an amalgamation of character traits that a real person wouldn't have in that combination. But seven is, is the biggest by far. So I think he's not only a seven, but a great example of a transmitting seven. And I think that might be a lot of the three-ish things that you're picking up there, TJ. I mean, I, I, I hear you. We're all complex and fictional characters are often more contradictory than others. So we will see different elements. But, you know, when I think back to if we could pick a movie to make to illustrate a transmitting seven. Hard to do better than this. 
Exactly right. And I think that Robert Downey Jr. is that profile in real life, right? And this movie was just Robert Downey Jr. being Robert Downey Jr. and every so often putting on a, a metal suit, right? So so give me your case for that, TJ Dahl. What makes you think he's a seven? One, he literally says this at one point, you got to run before you can walk, which is very yes. seven. Fast learners <laughs> ready to dive in. So you know, when he's building the flying boots, he tests them on himself and of course smashes himself up against the back wall, which is hilarious, a great undercut moment. And then later when the suit is ready, Jarvis, his AI is telling him, you know, we still have terabytes of calculations needed before an actual flight. And that's when he says, sometimes you got to run before you can walk and whoosh, out he goes. <laughs> and we see an example of this again in, in the Avengers when uh, Thor shows up and takes Loki away and Cap says, we need a plan of attack. Here's my plan, attack and whoosh, he goes. Yes. So he's very action-oriented, just plunge right in. I'll figure it out when I get there. Another thing, hedonism. When we first meet him, the very beginning of the movie, he's in the back of a Humvee in Afghanistan. He's just given this, this demonstration. He's got a drink in hand. Uh, one of the other soldiers is asking him if, he, if it's true that he had sex with all 12 Maxim cover models in one year. He's gambling at the casino. You know, we, we jump back 36 hours and he's being given some prestigious award and he doesn't even show up. He's at the casino where they're giving the award and he's playing craps and he's got women all over him. Alcoholism is a feature of the character and becomes more of a problem in later films. And that's a huge thread in the comics. That's something sevens definitely don't have a monopoly on that, but that comes on a lot because I'm trying to get stimulated. I want things to fill me up justification at the early part of the movie. You know, he's approached by uh, Christine Eberhardt, a Vanity Fair journalist who asked him about his nickname, The Merchant of Death, and he is right there ready with rebuttals, justifying his company being a weapons designer, filling the world with weapons, saying that, you know, there's also medical advances and advances in agriculture because of the military. You know, so he's ready to prove to himself and to the world that all of my seemingly bad choices are good choices. Somebody else can pick up my mess is often seen as a, as a seven thing. So whether it's somebody can deal with my one night stand or somebody can clean up all the chaos in my own lab as I'm using my equipment to destroy things because it can, because it's fun. Uh, I've seen that with sevens before. He's a wunderkind. He has a rapid advancement at an early age. This is something uh, Don Riso and Russ Hudson talked about, about sevens in The Wisdom of the Enneagram. Also seen with Mozart and Eddie Van Halen and Eddie Murphy, a few famous sevens there. He's mentioning the undercut. So yeah, one of the great scenes where he's doing that is when he goes out for that first flight, it's amazing. He goes too high in the sky, ice is over, falls down, looks like it's all going to smash and he's going to die, but he recovers at the last second, flies back, and then right as he lands triumphantly on the deck of his own house, he smashes through the floor, smashes through the next floor, lands on top of one of his classic cars, and then his robotic assistant blasts him with fire retardant fog in the face. So like... Let's just take some of his awesomeness away. Let's all laugh at him. And he seems perfectly fine with that. There's the improvisation. So we mentioned how much of the dialogue was improvised and how much of that was his own, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s own brilliance and flair with this kind of thing. There's also within the story, there's the fact that he's in a cave in Afghanistan and he makes a mini arc reactor out of scraps as Obadiah later screams to his assistant who can't do the same thing. And he makes the first Iron Man suit just out of available materials. So that can be a real seventh thing too, is like, what's here? Let's turn it into something brilliant. See a lot of sevens in the world of improv comedy. So the, the, the Enneagram type seven, uh, we refer to as striving to feel excited, right? So it's all about stimulation. It's all about 
seeking to feel alive, some sense of joy, recapturing it through external stimulation. And we get this dynamic also with the connecting points where there's this connection to point one, which can be this real rigidity, this real sort of uh, perfectionism that comes through, and a complex relationship with point five, because what we see at that striving to feel detached, there's this fear of missing out on anything. Right, which leads to this, you know, uh, excessiveness and impulsiveness, but also this withdrawing that happens. And this is the thing that's not often talked about with sevens of this going back to their lair to regroup. Right. And this is certainly something we see in Tony Stark. Right. I'm out there. I'm engaging with people, but I get tired of this. So let me go back and work on my cars and my this and my that and just be left alone by everybody and not be reached when I don't want to be. That's a big theme of his is being inaccessible in certain circumstances. TJ and Gracia, uh, additional thoughts. Uh, what else did you observe about Tony Stark that points to seven? I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned the transmitting seven and how some of that can look like the three at times. He does have this streak of narcissism. His ego is a, is a constant theme of butting heads with other characters who view his ego as overly inflated. And that can, you know, I think sometimes the three can be unfairly narcissism and the three sort of unfairly attached. Every type can be narcissistic in right. some ways, but seeing it through the lens of the transmitting seven can help square that circle in that character. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And a couple of other things. Um, he is obviously a genius, right? I mean, they make a, his intelligence is a big part of this. And I think one of the unfair depictions of sevens in some of the Enneagram literature is that they're either not that smart or they're frivolous or they don't finish things. Sevens don't finish things when they get bored with them. So they take on things that are really interesting challenges, right? And so you see a lot of sevens in the sciences because they're interesting challenges to take on. And, uh, you know, a lot of theoretical physicists and, uh, you know, astrophysicists, that sort of thing are often sevens because there are really complex problems to solve and it's going to keep me engaged for a while. And you could tell that's what motivates Tony is this, you know, I, I like challenges to figure out. I like puzzles in this way, not in a five-ish way of, you know, wanting to detach and figure things out, but in this, you know, it makes me feel alive to try and solve some problem. And the problems that he's working on have very practical applications. Yes. Say, say more on that, TJ, because they do make a uh, comment on that in a couple of places. Well, sevens generally aren't removed from the world. Like they'll take practical steps to make their ideas come to life because and this is one of the shades of the connection between seven and one. There's real idealism in the seven. Uh, this is something Russ has said is sevens don't just want fun and freedom for themselves. They want it for everyone. So even in the early part of the movie, when Tony's in his justifying phase, he really does believe that the weapons his company is making will make the world a better place. And then when he comes to realize what he's been doing and what his legacy is probably going to be, he reforms that and kind of ups his um, moral stance. And then that translates completely into practical action. He wants to get out there with these ideas that he has. He wants to share them. He wants to impact the world. So that's both seven and transmitting. Exactly right. Right. That is pretty much the definition of a transmitting seven. I got these things I'm excited about and I want the whole world to know about it. Right. Uh, TJ and Gracia, you were going to say something, I think. Yeah, that. I was just going to say, I've got this quote from this really great book that talks about the 27 subtypes. It's called Instinctual Leadership. 
don't know if you've heard of this book. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, forget, that is a good I forget the one, author, yeah. but uh, it's, and, it's and a great book. But, but he's a great guy. I forget what you, who it is to be great, smart, handsome. Yeah. Mario Sakura, I think, is, is the author. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just when you were talking about the excitement and bouncing from things, to you know, uh, they see the opportunity and possibility everywhere and they want to grab onto each one. The downside can be that they get distracted easily, jumping after to the next bright, shiny object before the task is completed. That's Tony. That's Tony. It's funny because there's a line in there where he walks into the gala that he's not supposed to be at. And as he's walking in, this woman says to him, hey, remember me? And he, he says, no, and just keeps going, right? <laughs> or, or something like that. You know, no, I don't. Just, you know, off he goes. So I think we see a real maturation of a type seven in this movie, right? Of somebody who's just purely hedonistic, right? He, uh, to somebody who is starting to find some sense of purpose and mission in life, uh, which serves as grounding, but he never loses that joy and enthusiasm that he brings. I, I, I want to go back in a minute and talk about other Enneagram types that we see in the movie, but just to kind of wrap up the Tony is a seven discussion at the end, when he is supposed to give the cover story for what happened, right? Agent Coulson gives him the cover story. You were, you know, on a yacht or something, and I'm sure bodyguard or whatever it was. He sits there and you can tell he's sitting there thinking, it'll be just so much cooler and so much more fun if I just admit it. And so he comes out and he says, I am Iron Man, right? So he admits it and this dramatically changes his, his, his life in, uh, in big ways. And something to add to that is that that was an ad lib, not just of the character, but of the actor. Oh, really? And it worked so well, they chose to keep it. And in doing so, they just got rid of a major trope of superhero stories, which is, are people going to find out that this superhero is this person's secret identity? It's like, we don't care. That's not relevant. And a couple more things before we leave Tony, two more things that really jumped out at me. One is, you know, the final words of Yinsen, the doctor who saves his life as he's dying in Tony's arms. He says, don't waste it. Don't waste your life, which is an extremely relevant theme to type seven. You know, sevens remind us that we only go around once. And what are you going to do with this one and precious life of yours? Mm -hmm. Don't live on the surface. Don't, not the whole time. Like really do something that matters to you. And then the other thing, the symbolic value of shrapnel in his chest that's traveling towards his heart and its magnet that keeps it at bay is very similar, like on a symbolic equivalent to Seven's relationship with pain and anxiety, is there's something in my past that hurts and I believe that I can outrun it. And if I just keep going fast enough, it won't catch me. And if I slow down, it'll get me and then I'll be trapped in pain. So I don't want that. So I got to keep on running. So that was intrinsic to the mythology of Iron Man, who was not created as an archetype of a seven. But I just think the symbolism of it in the movies, and maybe that's part of why the movies are way more successful than the comics ever were, is because of elements like that. I can't imagine a better symbol for type seven. Yeah, that's great. Okay, um, what other Enneagram types do we see? Uh, I, I think, uh, how, about, how about Obadiah Stain? Thoughts on his Enneagram type? Not a 100% fleshed out character. My guess, my best guess is eight. Like in that he bristles at being second in command. You know, at one point in the final confrontation, he yells at Tony, for 30 years, I've been holding you up. I built this company up from nothing and nothing's going to stand in my way, at least of all you. He gloats when Tony's paralyzed. He, you know, when he's wearing the suit, he yells out, I love this suit. Like he just revels in his own power. So mm -hmm. possibly an eight. But, you know. Okay. We don't meet him that much. 
I saw a whole lot of three stuff going on too, uh, a lot of transmitting three. And uh, I think the argument could be made either way. I think Jeff Bridges for sure is a nine in real life and has played some iconic uh, Enneagram type nine roles. Uh, we talked about the big Lebowski in season one. Uh, Jeff Bridges epitomized the, the nine in that movie. Uh, for me, a lot of the things that felt a bit three-ish were he was sneakier than eights tend to be, right? He was more manipulative. And whereas more uh, eights will usually stab you in the face rather than kind of stab you in the back sort of thing. But, you know, there, there, was, there was a lot of back and forth there. So I think that could have gone either way. Let's see. Um, another one, Colonel Rhodes, Rhodey. Thoughts on his Enneagram type? Didn't pop for me with any specific type. I guess off the top of my head, thinking about it right now, could be a three, could be a six. I wouldn't say either one with certainty. I was thinking maybe six. He seemed, you know, he's got a, a loyalty connection with Tony. Uh, he's sort of assessing threats. He's trying to keep the plate spinning and also keep Tony in check a little bit. Yeah, interesting. So, so for me, and, and again, the re reason we're having this conversation is not to argue and debate over any one character's enneagram type, because again, they're fictional characters and they're not uh, that well fleshed out. But to kind of uh, give an example of how you go about reasoning regarding these things, right? So whenever, you know, there's this thing in the Enneagram world where you have to be able to quickly identify somebody's Enneagram type and be certain about it and in order to be an expert. The best Enneagram teachers go through a process like this of saying, well, we saw this and we sort of saw this and we sort of saw this, but, you know, we don't really know for sure. I saw a bit of nine-ish stuff uh, here, right? I can see what you guys were saying about six and three. I saw uh, nine, particularly when he was um, on the plane with Tony. And Tony was saying to him, oh, you're angry. And he's saying, no, I'm not angry. I'm indifferent. Right. And, you know, there was that sort of back and forth and then he ends up drinking with him. And, and it was kind of when uh, Rhodes was, got drunk that the three in him sort of came out. Right. Which is something we often see in nines. Right. So the other major character we, uh, and TJ Daw already referenced was Pepper Potts. Uh, kind of a two-ish vibe there. Right. Would you, do you both see that? Yeah, I agree. Basically just cleaning up Many of Tony's messes, she's always there for him. She cares deeply for him. After he comes back from Afghanistan, he makes a new chest piece for himself. Pepper takes the old chest piece and gives it to him as a gift with an inscription that says, proof that Tony Stark has a heart. Very two-ish, yeah. The moment when she's dealing with the one-night stand and you know she presents her with her own clothes that have been laundered and dry cleaned and pressed and then she says i do everything tony requires of me including taking out the trash will that be all which is a beautiful moment of passive aggressive sweetness from a two yeah and then later when she and tony are dancing at that gala they have a bit of dialogue which was improvised like everything in the movie but i thought it just worked so well she says i actually don't think you could tie your shoes without me he says i'd make it a week really what's your social security number he answers Five. <laughs> Five. You're missing a couple of digits there. Well, I got you for the other eight. And that's very much too is the power behind the throne, the person who knows all the codes, who knows everything that needs to be done. I will take all of this off of your plate so that you don't have to worry about any of this. And in doing so, I actually know a lot and you couldn't last five minutes without me. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, Visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. 
I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. All right, so um, let's move on to the Avengers. Now, here we go from movie focused on just one character to the bringing together of uh, multiple characters. Again, I was struck by how much I enjoyed this movie and uh, how uh, well done it was. I remember seeing it in the movie theater and thinking, great, great popcorn flick, right? But it holds up on a lot of different levels. It's not just a popcorn flick. I think there are some really interesting observations about human nature through this movie. And for me, as somebody who works with uh, leaders in organizations, there were some really interesting ideas about uh, leadership and team building that I'll touch on a bit later. So let's, for our listeners, give a synopsis of the movie, The Avengers. Uh, so TJ and Gracia, I think you're going to do that for us. Sure. So as we said, The Avengers is the first film in this series that brings together several of the main characters all together. And I'll just give you the list here. So the primary ones are Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Hulk, Black Widow, and Hawkeye. So the film centers around Thor's brother, Loki, who's the god of mischief, uh, he comes to Earth to subjugate humanity with an alien army that he's been sort of given possession of. And as we get into this film, I'm just going to kind of describe it at a high level. But because of the interconnectedness of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we could talk for hours about all of like Easter eggs and the little threads, the hints that are dropped that don't show up until seven films later. So I'm going to kind of gloss over most of that. The point of all that was to say that the army that Loki is given possession of is ultimately being controlled by Thanos, who doesn't appear for many films later, and who ultimately becomes the, you know, the main antagonist of the Avengers. So in response to this, Nick Fury, who we mentioned earlier, who's the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., this intergovernmental intelligence quasi-military agency, uh, he finally has a chance to activate his Avengers initiative, which is his plan to bring together a group of heroes and superheroes who can team up and work together to respond to interplanetary and interdimensional threats to Earth. Until this film, all the superheroes have been working on their own. And so really the core theme of this film revolves around, can they work together? Can they come together as a team? Can they work out their differences? And that's actually one of Loki's main plans throughout the film is to turn them all against each other. And because if they can destroy each other, he doesn't have to bother doing that. Specifically, it's the conflict between Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, who is also Captain America. There are different leadership styles. Mara, you alluded to that, and I'm sure we'll get more into that in a minute. Loki's plan initially does work. He starts to turn them against each other, but eventually they, uh, they gel together as a team and they save the world together. So that's sort of the high-level overview. Great. Uh, TJ Dahl, any uh, additional comments on the theme? Or the, the synopsis. Yeah, I thought that was really good. Not um, beat by beat like I tend to do. But when you do that with a movie like this, that could go on for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, we'll be here all day, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I think that covers it brilliantly. Uh, a couple bits of trivia that I found out from researching it. One is that 
Well, for one thing, it was written and directed by Joss Whedon, who's very famous for his dialogue. And even within that, there was a fair bit of improv. So Robert Downey Jr. improvised some famous moments like that guy's playing Galaga or the suggestion that they all yeah, go yeah. out for shawarma, which supposedly boosted <laughs> shawarma sales around the globe. Or when he first meets Thor and he's taunting him and saying things like, doth thy mother know thou wearest her drapes? Like, again, his own humor was there like throughout. And I wonder if him referring to him, hey there, Point Break was an ad lib as well. The reference to Absolutely. the uh, Patrick Swayze and, and Point Break. Yeah. It was Joss Whedon's idea for there to be a bigger villain behind Loki, which became the big structural framework of the first, I think, three phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And in the Ultimate Universe, when they have that conversation I referenced before, where they talk about who would play them in a movie, well, the Nick Fury in that version of the Marvel Universe was drawn to look so much like Samuel L. Jackson. It was just, it was him. Like, there's just no mistaking it. So the fact that they cast him in the role is beautiful. And then one last unfortunate thing to mention is it has come out, I think in about the last year, that Joss Whedon turns out to be a real asshole and has been incredibly abusive to a lot of cast members on projects that he's worked with over the years and has kind of been disowned by the geek community. And that's a real shame because he is still very good at what he does. And this movie is one of the best summer movies I think there's ever been. It was a huge success. It made more than a billion dollars at the box office. And it's just a shame that it's now got that baggage attached to it. Actually, um, something I found interesting is that as uh, Josh Whedon was thinking about kind of how this team would play together, his big inspiration was The Dirty Dozen, the movie that brings together the World War II movie with uh, a really uh, great cast of characters um, that brings together these disparate personalities who bicker the whole time and, you know, who are kind of misfits. And uh, so was that Dr. Strangelove was a big inspiration. The movie, The Abyss with Ed Harris and uh, yeah, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Yes, yes. His Girl Friday uh, was a big influence and Black Hawk Down. Uh, and you can see with the pacing, some Black Hawk Down stuff where it was just this, every time they turn a corner, you know, here comes something else, right? Uh, you know, coming at them. So uh, it was interesting to see flourishes of those movies in the Avengers for me. One other thing I want to call out two cameos in this movie. Uh, one was by Powers Booth who plays the leader of the council. And I will watch Powers Booth in anything. I think that that guy is one of the all-time classic over-actors who I just love to watch. I just love to watch that guy on film chewing up the scenery, right? I mean, there's a movie, still one of my all-time favorite movies called Extreme Prejudice with Powers Booth and Nick Nolte where Powers Booth just goes over top. It's a, a cheap ripoff of Peckinpah's uh, The Wild Bunch, uh, but just a great, great Powers Booth um, performance. And we also see far too little of Harry Dean Stanton, who plays the guy when, uh, when Hulk falls to earth and has the great line of, boy, well, then you got a problem, you know, or condition or something like that. I never get exactly what it was, but uh, I could watch either of those guys all day long. So that was fun to see. You can see more of the Harry Dean Stanton scene in a deleted scene, which is on YouTube. There's a much longer conversation between him and Mark Ruffalo's character and very funny. And yeah, he's as effortlessly charming and interesting as always. Yes. Uh, one other thing you're speaking of uh, Ruffalo, he was not supposed to be 
the Hulk in this movie. Uh, it was supposed to be played by Edward Norton, who played uh, the Hulk in the second Hulk movie. The first one was um, played by Eric Bana, who I, I, I'm a big fan of, never had the career that I thought he could have, although he's been in some great movies. Uh, Edward Norton played him in the second movie. And there was, again, I think some contract uh, arguments that uh, led to Mark Ruffalo, who was a friend of Edward Norton being cast in the movie, which for me, for the better, I think Mark Ruffalo is great in that role, uh, really embodies uh, Bruce Banner very well. Uh, TJ and Grassi, any other tidbits about the movie that we didn't talk about? The only thing I was going to add is I did not know that that shawarma line was improvised that you mentioned earlier, TJ, which is interesting because for the post credit scene for this movie is all of them sitting around together in a busted shawarma joint. You know, New York's been destroyed in the big epic fight. <laughs> They're all just sitting silently eating shawarma as the owner is sweeping up the glass in the background. So uh, and, 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 and one of the things Tony Stark says was that he doesn't even know what shawarma is. After he says, you know, you want to go get a shawarma. I, I, I don't know what it is, but I, but I hear it's great. Uh, for those of you who don't know what shawarma is, it's kind of a gyro. It's a Middle Eastern uh, pita-based sandwich rolled up uh, that's quite delicious. Uh, you know, I've spent some time in the Middle East, and you get some really great shawarma there. Uh, just one quick story. The best one I ever had, I was stranded at the Muscat Oman airport for about six hours uh, some years ago. Um, and uh, there were very few places to get any food. And there was a great shawarma stand where I had a couple. So there's my little shawarma story. And I also get to throw in that I've spent six hours in the Muscat Oman airport for mysterious reasons. So, <laughs> right. okay. Uh, so Enneagram types, we've already talked about Tony Stark is a type seven. And I think that even though he is a more grown up version of the seven, he's still a seven in this movie. Uh, what other Enneagram types do we see? TJ and Gracia, let's hear from you first. Back to the clash of personalities we talked about earlier. I think this film is mostly pitting Tony Stark and his style against Steve Rogers slash Captain America in his style. And as the resident type one here, I can attest that Cap is about the onest one who's ever won. The opening <laughs> scene where we see him, Nick Fury approaches him about the Avengers initiative. He's attacking a punching bag and he's sort of having flashbacks to he's recently woken up. He was frozen in ice for 60 years uh, since World War II. He's having flashbacks to that time period. He's eventually, he, he punches the punching bag so hard, he knocks it off the thing. He walks over to a pile of new punching bags, hangs it back up and keeps going. And so just sort of this internal, this simmering sort of rage, whatever that is, I can resonate and I can say that that's, that's how it goes. <laughs> so there's a scene where they have to figure out how to team up against Loki. Cap says to Tony, we need to come up with a plan of attack. And TJ, as you said earlier, Tony's response is, I have a plan, attack. So there's this contrasting style of Tony just wants to, whatever, uh, ready, fire, aim. Get out there, let's just do it. Cap is more deliberate. He wants to figure it out first. Um, and there's, there's constant clashes between them throughout the movies of Cap sort of having a more what would you call it? More of a team orientation, wanting to sort of do the right thing, follow the rules. And Tony is very much, you know, break the rules, whatever it takes to get it done. Tony Stark is more of a lone wolf and it's harder for him, I think, to gel with the rest of the team. So that's the biggest dynamic that I saw in the film. Before we move on to other characters, let's talk about that because I agree with you. I think that is the big theme, uh, the seven versus one 
uh, sort of mindset in this movie. T.J. Daw, any other thoughts on Captain America and his oneness? Uh, and then I have a couple of comments. Yeah, a couple of great one moments. And Cap, particularly in these movies, is just such a shining example of a one. It's really beautiful. So after Tony says, here's my plan attack, he whooshes off to go get Loki back from Thor, who's taken him away, which leads to a big fight, which is interrupted by Cap showing up and yelling, hey, that's enough. Put that hammer down. So like laying down the law, being kind of the natural source of authority, even though in theory, he doesn't have any authority. These are two independent human beings or, or in one case, an Asgardian. But like to set himself up as the one who lays down the law, the one who makes the right thing happen is just a beautiful one moment. Then later, he's getting in an argument with Tony Stark about their contrasting styles. He says to him, big man in a suit of armor, the only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play to lay down on the wire and let the other guy through. To which Stark replies, I'd cut the wire. So it's this whole difference in philosophies about, are you in this for yourself or are you in it for the rest of us? And Tony's response, I would cut the wires. I would clever my way through this. I would figure out a way that I didn't have to do that. And yet the climax of the movie is him doing precisely that. And not just in this movie, but in the final movie of his appearance in all of this, which we'll get to a few episodes, hence Avengers Endgame. It's him being willing to sacrifice himself for the good of all. It's him kind of integrating healthy oneness into his sevenness. And there's a theme of also through over the course of the Marvel movies of Cap more integrating his seven, lightening up. There are several jokes about him uh, not swearing and taking himself too seriously. And so they sort of move towards each other and integrate each other over the course of the film and become better friends through some hard trials, but in the end become better friends because of it. So I do agree that uh, Captain America is a type one. I'm also going to suggest that he is a transmitting type one. Very often in the Enneagram literature, the so-called social one is seen as the quote unquote reformer, right? The one who wants to change the world, the one who wants to impact the world in some way. And that's simply not accurate. It is the transmitting one that is the Old Testament prophet, right? That is the one that has this moral imperative that it is trying to push out into the world, uh, very often in good ways. Um, the navigating one is more concerned about interpersonal behavior, okay? The way we interact with each other and the way I interact with people. It's the transmitting one that has a vision of how the world should be and is trying to bring it about that has a moral stance that it's trying to push out into the world. And this is, you know, again, Captain America just exudes this. I mean, the name, you know, Captain America, you know, and there's one line where he says, what, the bars and stars are no longer in favor, you know, and it's just this, you know, he's got this moral vision of things. And I think that moral vision applies to his approach to building teams. You know, there are different ways to build teams. There are different ways to be a team player. And one of them is more of a consensus orientation of bringing people together. Whereas another one is, this is the way it's going to be, folks. Okay. This is what leadership looks like. This is what our cause is. This is what our team is going to be. And you're going to fall in line, right? Because I know how it should be. And that's how Captain America strikes me, right? So he's a team player in the sense of, yes, we want to work through a team, but he's not so much a team player in the sense of really being open to other points of view and other ways of doing things, right? So uh, an interesting 
you know, way of thinking about it. And again, we'll come back to this thing. I, I said I wanted to talk a little bit about team building and, and leadership. Uh, we'll come back to that. But yeah, very clearly a great example of an Enneagram transmitting one in this character. And an inspiring leader. I think one's at their best, Absolutely. particularly transmitting ones. You would follow them to the ends of the earth and feel good about doing so. Absolutely. They do have this moral authority, right, that they bring. And it's, it's, I think of a Gandhi, I think of a Nelson Mandela as this kind of leadership, John Paul II, another one, right? We might, uh, with any of those people, we might have quibbles about them uh, in you know one way or another, but they do bring this moral authority that inspires people. Uh, before we go on there, a couple of other characters. So, um, we haven't talked about Nick Fury's Enneagram type yet. Uh, curious about your thoughts, guys, on Nick Fury's Enneagram type. Uh, I would say it's a toss-up between – I see some transmitting six, the uh, the classic normally called the counterphobic type, also could be an eight. He's putting together this response team. He's seeing the angles. He's seeing the threats and wants to neutralize them. But his response is not to be afraid of the threat or to deal with it after the fact. He's responses to go after it, to attack, to be proactive. I don't know that I see as much of the power dynamic in him, but I mean, there's, there's some of that. So I'd say either one of those could be a good case. Yeah, agreed. Uh, he's not a very fleshed out character. We don't see him do that much. He's not one of the main characters. So when he is describing the original intention behind bringing the Avengers together, he said the idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people, see if they could become something more, see if they could work together if we needed them to, fight the battles we never could, which strikes me as six on a couple of levels. One is, as you said, anticipating threats. Another is an overall six-ish theme that I think applies to the whole notion of this team of heroes, whether it's the Dirty Dozen, whether it's the Avengers or any situation like this. And this is something Russ Hudson has talked about. The healthy side of six is how do we cooperate? How do we come together? How do we combine forces and set aside our differences and respect that everyone has something important to offer and work together to get big things done that none of us could do on our own? That is very six. And at the same time, I don't know that I've ever seen Samuel L. Jackson in a movie where he wasn't playing an eight. And probably I'd be shocked if he wasn't an eight in real life. Like he just exudes eightness. So no matter what role he's playing, it's really hard to see him as anything other than an eight just because of his energy that he transmits at all times. So I'm going to put a refinement on that. And I, I again, hear where you guys are coming from. My assessment of him would be it's a character written as a navigating eight played by a transmitting eight. And um, what I don't see, why, why I would lean away from six, while I hear exactly what you're saying, and I, you know, there's legitimate points of view there, I don't see a moment's hesitation or doubt in Nick Fury anywhere in any of these things, right? In fact, when he's given the instructions to, you know, nuke uh, New York City, he's just, no, you know, I'm stuck in no. And he doesn't do it in the way that a transmitting six does, where there's this sort of anxious, combative, you know, sort of quality. The navigating eight is really good at team dynamics of putting teams together, of understanding the strategic layout of the environment, right? And watching for threats, identifying the enemies, really, these are great generals, right? Of people who can go out there and figure things out. But again, I think it's played by a transmitting eight because I completely agree with you, TJ Daw. Samuel L. Jackson is a transmitting eight to his core. There's a he he has a masterclass series on you know the masterclass 
uh, group of videos where he teaches acting and it's the, the guy just exudes transmitting eight, right? Even in that, where he's not playing a character other than Samuel L. Jackson. So uh, good arguments for the six. I think they're legitimate. You know, again, uh, the, these things are imperfect. That would just be my uh, assessment of what I'm seeing there on screen or think I'm seeing. And let's think about what his name is. I mean, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Nick freaking Fury, you know? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> okay. Uh, one other character I wanted to touch on uh, Bruce Banner, Enneagram type. Oh, big old nine, I think. You know, we're going to talk about him more specifically in a later episode, but I just love his line. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. I think the Hulk in general is a brilliant analogy for a nine's bottled anger. And in general, when he's just being a scientist, when he's being himself, he's incredibly gentle and easygoing, especially even though he's repeatedly described as one of the smartest scientists in the world. You know, when we first meet him, he's a slum doctor in India, and that's where he's hiding out. And he doesn't seem to put himself above anyone. Like, he's just there to give medical care to whoever needs it. Yeah. And in fact, there's this scene later where he's talking with the others. Uh, a couple of things that strike me as very nine-ish. He even talks about, you know, they took his life away from him. So he just played along. He went out to be helpful and, you know, basically subsumed his identity by being of service in some ways, which is a very nine-ish sort of behavior. Strikes me more as a navigating nine than uh, preserving or transmitting. The, your point about the anger, I, I agree with. And uh, there was something else. Oh, when they tried, uh, when um, when Tony Stark was trying to provoke him, and he's just playing it calm, and even when they tried to get his opinion about what Shield was up to, he didn't want to have any parts of it. You know, it's like, nah, you know, I, I'm just here to do my job, sort of thing. Until they really pulled out of him what his suspicions might be. So, uh, I, I I would agree to. I, I see Bruce Banner as a nine. And that the Hulk is that bottled up anger that comes out, which if you have ever experienced the anger of a nine is kind of what it looks like, right? Um, you know, the, the rage that flashes out of nines very often. TJ and Grassi, do you, do you have any other thing you would add to that or disagree? Uh, no, I think that's a great analysis that the uh, sort of that metaphor of, of the nine and the rage coming out. I think that's perfect. Although that is one of my favorite lines of the entire franchise. You know, that's my secret. I'm always <laughs> angry because that's how I feel every moment of every day. So I very much relate to that. <laughs> I, I I can relate to that as well, right? I think that's something that eight, nines, and ones do share is a, a real good contact with their anger or at least being centered around anger in a lot of ways. So I'm only mostly joking. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I, I am just an angry man. I mean, if, if you ever, you know, I got these lines in my forehead here from from scowling all the time, right? So uh, it's it's my uh, it's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. All right. Um, let's see. So I I, I I do I do want to share a couple of thoughts, like I said, about uh, approaches to team building and uh, leadership that I thought are Enneagram relevant here. But before we do that, any characters whose types you thought were really clear that we didn't talk about yet. Loki. Oh, let me throw this out. Where would you put Loki, guys? My guess for him is three. Uh, again, we don't get to know him super well. I think there's an argument for four as well, but he is adopted among other things. Not that that makes somebody a four, but that's just an element to his character. He's the least favorite child with a big chip yeah. on his shoulder about it. And he does a lot of speechifying about his own superiority. 
and out it is his place to rule that he's better than people also he's a really good deceiver again threes mm-hmm. don't have a monopoly on that but that's one of his superpowers is mm-hmm. arranging things exactly the way he wants manipulating people so yeah i think there's a strong case for him being a three yeah, agreed. I, I think there's uh, an argument could be made either way, and there are certainly elements of both three and four. Yeah, uh, let's see uh, who else. I don't think we get a good feel for most of the other characters. Thor, let's save the conversation for Thor, because I think he's an interesting character who certainly we want to get into. Same thing with Black Widow. I know we're going to discuss in future episodes, so uh, we'll, we'll come back to those. So the point I wanted to make, again, we, we do see this clash of leadership styles between the seven and the one. Uh, So that's a big part of it. It's interesting in that um, this movie, again, represented uh, what is at the heart of what goes into creating a team, right? And uh, as somebody, you know, like I said, who works with leaders and works in organizations around teams, this was very interesting to observe in me. What I find is that teams either mesh or not based on two things. Uh, One is values, what's important to me, and the other is style how I go about getting what's important to me. And that's the way I see the Enneagram. I see the Enneagram instinctual biases as something related to values, right? What elements are important? And then strategies, how do I go about satisfying those values? And as we looked at this, something that struck me was that there's a whole lot of transmitting energy with the Avengers. You know, Tony Stark, we talked about Captain America. I think Thor probably, you know, whole lot of transmitting going on uh, with the uh, Black Widow. There's transmitting, et cetera, right? I, I, again, I, I suggested that Banner seems like a navigating style myself, but, you know, uh, anyway, whole lot of transmitting going on. And so very often what happens when you get a whole bunch of transmitters together on a team, they all kind of want to be the star and do things their own way, right? And, you know, no, wait, I am the star of this, right? And it's always interesting in an ensemble cast with a lot of transmitters is that, you know, it's a lot of kind of one-man shows. I was listening to an interview with uh, Billy Joel yesterday, and he was talking about why he never dated other singers. And he said, singers are the star of the show. You don't want two of those people in a relationship, right? And uh, so I think this is one of the things that sort of made it challenging for the Avengers to come together as a team. And then you have a style issue of, okay, how should we approach this, right? You have Tony Stark of, let's just jump into action. And you have um, uh, you have Captain America of, no, wait, we need a plan. We need to think this through. We need to be methodical about this, right? And then you have uh, Thor, who, you know, is just kind of laughing at them, right? Of, you know, oh, you you know, you humans are so silly and so tiny, you know, that that sort of thing, right? So you have these uh, people going in all sorts of different directions, which uh, is why understanding the Enneagram is so darn important, right? Because the thing that was really missing on that team was the navigating perspective. And I thought that's what Fury as written brought to the team, right? Maybe again, not as displayed by... Um, Samuel L. Jackson, but this idea of how do you take this dis- disparate group, put them into some context, identify the right roles for them, the right uh, plan of attack, etc. So um, I think it was a great uh, view at how teams can struggle when a lot of people are too similar in some ways and not similar enough in other ways. I thought it was really interesting to watch the scene when the helicarrier gets attacked partially by the brainwashed Hawkeye. 
And that's the peak of their disagreement as a team. Yes. But they're immediately able to set it aside. And even though Cap and Tony Stark were specifically arguing, the two of them have a subtask to do together. And they agree completely as soon as there's something for them to unite for. And, and frankly, this is what I often see in teams that are heavy transmitting. They are great in a crisis, right? They are great when, okay, we don't have any choice about what our plan of, atta- of action is here. Let's just go for it. And they're going to shine and they're going to be awesome, right? It's in those moments when they don't have an enemy to attack or a crisis to deal with that they start to struggle and the infighting comes into play. But you're, you're, you're right. And, and it points also to this idea, and this is something that can dog people who are transmitters in organizations. And I'm sorry to hijack this this way, but I couldn't help but notice it as we were talking about it. Um, they can get the reputation of being kind of self-centered, right? But when push comes to shove, you see their heart. You see that they do care about other people. You see that they really are about the common good, even if it doesn't look like it at times. Uh, TJ Daw, anything final before we wrap up? Yeah. One thing that occurred to me watching the Avengers, as I mentioned, just what a wonderful summer movie it is. It occurred to me that the whole notion of summer movies, of summer blockbusters is very seven Mm. in that that Mm. kind of movie is generally credited to Jaws being the first one, which was created by a seven and among its three leads includes a seven playing a seven. And summer movies are usually action adventure mixed with comedy, sometimes straight up comedy, but there's this desire to excite the audience, to entertain, to have fun. They often come out before the summer. So they're even anticipating the summer. Summer movies start coming out in May and June. So they're technically spring movies and they're accessible to everyone. They're rarely rated R. They travel the globe much better than dramas or regular comedies because they're not dialogue driven. And they're movies for which it is 100% appropriate to munch popcorn and candy and drink soda. And these very much like the snacks you're consuming are generally empty calories, but who cares? They taste great and they're fun while you're doing it. So I think these are some of the best blockbusters there's ever been. And now Marvel, you know, as you mentioned, TJ and Gracia, they're putting them out all year round. They've really colonized the entire release schedule. And a phrase that I used when describing Die Hard in our podcast episode about holiday movies was Die Hard is a buffet of awesome. I think the Avengers is similar. It's an even bigger banquet of awesome. You know, you've got all kinds of heroes. You've got scenes where they fight each other. So that's something that comic book fans would often do, whether it was in the schoolyard or in comic stores is like, say, who would win in a fight? Would it be Thor or Iron Man? Well, we get to see that happen. We get to see them actually go after each other. Loki is a great scenery chewing villain. He's sadistic. He speechifies about his superiority. The Chitari are evil looking aliens. It's very easy to feel good about them getting killed, yes. quite honestly. Yes. There's Clint Barton's impossible marksmanship. There's the fact that a conk on the head is what relieves his brainwashing. There's <laughs> so many moments like that that are designed to make the audience go, yeah. And I think it succeeds. 10 out of 10. Guys, thank you. This is a great way to start off episode one of season three and uh, the first of our five explorations into the Marvel movies. I'm looking forward to the next one. What two movies are up next, guys? Remind me. We're going to be looking at Black Widow and Avengers Age of Ultron. Good. Looking forward to that. That's coming up next. So I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Enneagram and a Movie. Take care, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. 
In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.